Welcome back to the Election Whisperer. And again, I am so excited. You can hear it right in my chipper, chipper voice because today I have landed two guests that I have long admired in their political journalism work, devouring every book and article that they have written um, from the campaign stump. Um, their 2016 book, Shattered, uh, looked at the you know failure of, of Hillary Clinton's campaign. I had that on my desk when I wrote my own book, which was a political science diagnostic on the 2016 campaign. So when they dropped their 2020 book, Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency, I was like first in line on Amazon to pre-order it. I knew it was going to be a great read, and I was just dying to get into some of these uh, details about, you know, for me, uh, the, the main part of Lucky is that primary process. Uh, that's where luck really, really comes to the Irish luck comes to save Joe Biden. And I was dying to read the intrigue details of how he organized or got um, the luck of the Irish to get him through that Super Tuesday South Carolina stunner when I was sitting in D.C., and, um, you know, he ends up stomping South Carolina, saving the Democratic Party from what would have been absolutely would have been a contested convention and possibly set up um, the only situation that my forecast could have gotten foiled from uh, a situation where they go into the DNC in August with no nominee and a fight between the progressive wing and the mainstream wing of the Democratic Party's uh, my forecasting work. Did not account for a situation like that. It would have been an absolute disaster for the Democratic Party. So I was just dying to get into, um, you know, the insider accounts of what was happening because that's not information a political scientist like me gets privy to. So, so I am so excited to have Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes, the two authors of Lucky, on the show today to tell me about all of this great insider knowledge they picked up on the stump. They are very well connected, uh, Washington and and, um, you know, uh, political reporters of very long resumes of, of success and, and reporting on the stump with all of the main players that really take you inside uh, the world of these high end politicos and, and the thinking. Uh, in fact, I've got so many questions about how you do your reporting. I, I don't know that anyone's ever wanted to know about that, but I, I've got questions. So I'm excited to have you guys on the show. And um, I'm just going to let you guys introduce yourselves briefly to the audience. Uh, I'll start with Amy. Amy, uh, could you just tell the audience a little bit about your um, political resume? Sure. Um, I'm Amy Parnes. Um, I um, am a senior political correspondent at The Hill, uh, co-author with, uh, with John Allen of three books, HRC, Shattered, and, um, and Lucky. And um, I'm a proud mom of a six-year-old boy. And Jonathan. Uh, I'm Jonathan Allen. I'm a senior politics reporter for NBC News Digital, meaning NBCNews.com, um, a former uh, Washington bureau chief of Bloomberg News, former White House bureau chief at Politico, and um, uh, a winner of a couple of awards for congressional reporting. Um, I am the proud father of a nine-year-old boy and a seven-year-old girl, and the newest addition to the family uh, a golden doodle named Fluffy Tiger, named by the children. Hey, that's a great name. And I have uh, seen the golden doodle um, by which Jonathan is speaking of. And I can tell you that Fluffy Tiger makes perfect sense in uh, in terms of the name. So, you know, we kids, they always go with, with literal. And it is definitely a fluffy looking tiger of a golden doodle. So <laughs> uh, for the record, I, I also have a seven-year-old. I have a 20-year-old, too. I, I really recommend not splitting your parenting out like that because you know with your old once you've had an older child how fruitless all the efforts you are making with younger children are <laughs> so you, uh, you know you really dial it in on that second kid yeah <laughs> what's I've the had point of all experience. this organic stuff and all this hard you know books over ipads you're like ah it all goes to hell when you have a 20 year old you see the fruit of your effort is pointless so just uh just let you guys know that thank you <laughs> all right really so encouraging I'm, yeah yeah no i i figure i try to always tell parents of young children that so that they don't aren't so hard on themselves as they go through uh that young child parenting so you know so it's all for naught <laughs> 
So um, I'm excited to dump, to ju- kind of jump right in. And, you know, the book really lays itself out uh, as presidential campaigns do. I mean, there, there are two, two, two act events. It's like a play. You have your opening act, the primary, and then you have your closing act or second act, which is the general election. You know, most voters really don't even realize that, right? Uh, my, I have students that come into my class and it's a concept that they struggle with to talk about a primary, which is an event that occurs within one party. It's an inter-party event. And then a general election in which two parties are competing against each other. You actually have to take time to teach students the you know difference between that kind of, of campaign where, where you have two parties competing against each other or partisans competing competing within one party and why it matters, because it does. I mean, obviously, you're really talking about very different dynamics. So um, as you go into the primary, I mean, we're talking now in American politics, we have these, you know, we, we have this concept in political science, we call the invisible primary, which is formally defined as the time period before the Iowa caucus. <laughs> and it's used to be, you know, maybe the fall before the Iowa caucus. And now it's at least a year and and really pretty much the day after the November midterms, we we kind of consider being now the invisible primary. And so your guys's job is to start tracking those who are hungry for the nomination and get a sense of who's getting in and who's getting out. And one of the values of a book like yours, you know, where mine is all about systems, uh, you know, I'm looking at how many candidates are going to run, and ultimately, it's it's very reductionist. So people who follow me on Twitter back then, my longest term followers will know that I was saying, you know, as early as right after the midterms, you know, many will enter, but it won't matter because it will be the two that have name ID that come out at the end. And that will be probably Biden and Sanders, though Elizabeth Warren probably has enough name ID and is enough like a fresh, she's more electable than Sanders. So she gives you all the progressive goodies without the, like the baggage. So she'd probably overtake him, right? That was my initial um, diagnosis. And that's because most people don't watch a democratic debate ever. You know, they don't ever learn who Kamala Harris is or Pete Buttigieg is or somebody like that. So all the intrigue that people like you and I follow for all of those glorious months, all the headlines, all the debates, all the polls that we devour, that is something that only very special people ever engage in. And average people are like, who is, who are these people? I've never heard of them. So, you know, it's not so much necessarily that a candidate struggles with a certain demographic group. It's so much as it is that they, they that demographic group doesn't really know enough to express an opinion and will latch to the one person that they have heard of, which tends to be the, excuse me, the ex-vice president or, you know, somebody who has at least a lot of national buzz, like Elizabeth Warren. So... In your um, book, though, you know, the, each candidate comes in and, and, and they, they're excited and they think they've got a great chance. And I, what I really wanted to dig into is, you know, I, I have these assumptions, right, that candidates talk to each other, that Sanders and Warren met and kind of hand, you know, um, hashed out some kind of non-combatant agreement. And your book opens up pretty much affirming that. So how do you, how do you, I want to talk about the mechanics. Like, how do you guys find that out? Talk to me a little bit about your process of reporting. Since John and I have worked together so long, um, it's almost been a decade long partnership. Um, I think we, we have very similar styles we have from the beginning. Uh, We work together at Politico. um, And so we have kind of a very similar writing style. Um, And what John and I do in terms of reporting is we um, have, we each bring our own um, sets of sources, I think, to the table, which is always helpful. Um, and we talk to them about what happens in real time. And we talk to them um, under certain conditions, one of them being a background condition that nothing comes out before the election. And um and also we protect their identities by talking to them on background. And so uh, that enables them to essentially give us the real story about what's going on behind the scenes and what they know 
Um, and it's, it's not as easy as it sounds. It takes a lot of um, asking uh, the right questions. Um, John is really talented at um, sort of reading between the lines, and, and I've, I've learned a lot from him in that way. Um, and, you know, that, that's sort of how we begin. But it's uh, a lot of that, many months of that, going back to the same sources initially, expanding on those, on what we find out. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's probably the hardest thing. Writing a book is pretty much the hardest thing anyone can ever do, I think, with the exception of childbirth. <laughs> <laughs> I might agree with that. John? I can't speak to the uh, physical act of childbirth, but, um, but my wife has, has endured that twice. And, and it's, I think what Amy says sounds about right to me. Um, I, <laughs> one of the things that we try to do with these books is, um, and this is actually something that, uh, that my father kind of uh, struck on, um, with our first book, HRC, he said, you know, you have a lot of really good behind the scenes stuff, but I don't remember these episodes of Hillary Clinton traveling around the world doing X, Y, and Z. And so one of the things we try to do is make sure there's a healthy balance of things that you've never heard of at all that we're revealing about what happened behind the scenes with the campaign, but also to take the moments that people remember and really build out the the story of what went into that. So for example, in the book, you know, we talk about how Kamala Harris decided to go after Joe Biden, you know, that she was in a place where she was struggling and she needed a big moment and she wanted to, um, to you know, to land a punch and to say to the Democratic electorate that she could take on uh, a front runner. You know, in this case, it was Biden, but as a proxy for Donald Trump and sort of go through the machinations and the discussion she's having inside her camp about a going after him in the first place, which was a little bit uh, dangerous at a time when civility was kind of the, the watchword of the Democratic primary electorate. Um, and then and then secondly, uh, how to go after him. And thirdly, once she decided that she was going to go after him on school busing, you know, what's the form that that takes and how does she try to measure um, implying that he's bad on race without uh, without saying it in a way that bounces back on her and you know you can see the effects of that um and we write about that we write about biden's reaction to it how both camps try to capitalize on the moment um you know and and biden doing damage control and then trying to turn it into a positive harris not really ready to go through the follow-through of that um and then and then what that what effect that has on the vice presidential race so that's an example of like a big moment where we'll like kind of take you inside and there are other moments where you may not have, as as you were watching the election, may not have even known they were happening. Yeah, let me let me just expand on, on that uh, that moment, that particular moment that you guys bring so much richness to. I feel like I'm in the debate room, right? And then, of course, you know, for the benefit of my followers who are, you know, following me for a particular reason, they like that I kind of take them into a political science classroom. And, um, you know, so I, I read... I read these debate prep rooms, you know, and they've got these these titans of debate prep, right? And uh, be, but I have studied debate prep um, analytically because I t- I taught it in my campaigns and elections class, and I wanted to teach my students who were going to go off and work as campaign managers. You know, if you're working with candidates, this is the stuff strategically. I would think you would want to prepare your candidates for so that you don't you don't have Charlie Crist fighting over the fan in Florida or whatever, right? Or you have Marco Rubio. Dr- drinking water and you know strategy is my 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 concentration so i i teach my political behavior and my campaigns and elections through this really weird particular focus so i have studied like the best practices of debates right and and i it's funny because it's striking to me as i'm reading this and i'm in this room how much of those things are missing even though these titans of debate prep are in there, they are still letting the candidate dictate the strategy largely, right? Which is like, to me, like if, you know, I was to work on any candidate campaign, the only way I would ever say yes would be as as if I got to control the strategy. I would never want a candidate running strategy and uh and 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 then you're it's almost like you guys have a bug in there so you know like there's times where you will report thought that comes out of a candidate's head and i'm wondering when when it's a thought in someone's head like how is that sourced exactly well we never really reveal our sources right right but like i mean are you sure they thought that i guess is what i'm trying to ask yeah 
Yeah, you're sure. Okay. <laughs> the mechanism, and I think I can do this without revealing sources, but I mean, the mechanism is if if we go into someone's thoughts, it is, um, generally speaking, it's either something that they told us or somebody who was speaking to them, um, you know, around that time uh, said, to the, you know, that they said to someone else, you know, I mean, it's not like it's generated out of out of thin air. But, um, you know, I, I think our, our sort of rule is if they said it to someone else, um, then it... Uh, then it is something that they thought at some point, you know, that we're not, we're not going too far out. Okay. So we have, we actually have a little item at the very back of the book that sort of says, how do we do this? Um, and oh. that's, that's, that's the case. And and the reason that we do it that way is because um, we have an agreement with all of our sources that we're not going to reveal their identities. And that includes the candidates we spoke to. So we have to, we have to be a little careful about, um, I, I guess about the way that that's presented, but in some cases it's because we spoke to them. And in some cases it's because we spoke to one or more people who were talking to them about the subject and, and were able to re- relay their thoughts. But when yeah, we well, are, when, when we're going at length, I should mention Rachel, when we're, when you're seeing a huge thought bubble, chances are we've actually talked to the person who was thinking that, which is why we are able to give you the whole sense of what they were thinking. Well, it's a marvelous, it's marvelous to be able to get into the thought processes, you know, so like, you know, with the, the decision by the Harris team to kind of prep this, this busing thing. And obviously it was prepped because they had their material to go live with the social media and the merchandising, right? Uh, So even if we hadn't had the benefit of the book, we would know that, right? Um, But, um, you know, in political science, of course, there's this concept of momentum. And and, uh, I know Heilman loves saying the word big mo, big mo. He always says that all the time. Um, But uh, we talk about momentum in primaries a lot. And, you know, know, the Harris team has this big debate moment, but they don't have anything built behind it, right? And it's a classic example of where you have this momentum and you have to think beyond that first moment. You have to have momentum multipliers um, secured beyond that um, moment. You have to assume your momentum moment's going to work and then build those momentum multipliers backwards. And that's really what the brilliance of the Obama campaign was with David Plouffe, who I still consider to be the, you know, top campaign manager who has ever graced uh, presidential politics because of the ability of them to have prepared all of those momentum multipliers beyond that Iowa caucus. It's one thing to win that Iowa caucus, especially without, without that name identification uh, component. You know, in, in 2008, Obama didn't have name ID. So b- by the political science rule, he had no business of ever winning the Democratic nomination, especially against someone like Hillary Clinton, it it breaks almost every fundamental rule of presidential primary political science research that Barack Obama would win the 2008 nomination, but it would not have happened, too, without the planning of the campaign with with those momentum multipliers all the way through, including and up to winning that Iowa caucus. So it was was a a really great way to illustrate why you need, if you're going to have a big moment, you have to have something back there to build it on. And then you guys go on to um, talk about how Warren starts to transfer as the progressive frontrunner with Sanders, um, despite the fact that she has done all of these unorthodox things, right? Uh, things that, you know, most of the political class has has kind of laughed at. Uh, can you go, kind of talk a little bit about why Warren, um, what Warren did that was so unorthodox compared to what the other front-running candidates were doing, and then how she ended up kind of passing Sanders for a little bit in terms of being the progressive front-runner? Well, I think she, for starters, I think she did what a lot of what a lot of the other folks um, couldn't do, which was get out ahead and hire the best people in Iowa and on the ground. And she really established a really um, strong campaign from the start. Um, And that was something that a lot of um, candidates were sort of a little bit envious of, that she kind of had that um, head start. And um, I think that she was running sort of a really good campaign in terms of um, she was the ideas candidate, you know, in in, in a time where people didn't know if ideas really mattered. um, But she really was the one who had a plan for everything and she had thought through everything. And that's sort of who she is fundamentally. 
Um, but she was doing things like creative kinds of things like the selfie line, which we go into in the book. And her, her campaign manager didn't think that she would be into it at first. Um, and then she is really liking it and it becomes such a staple of her campaign. And I think that that was sort of all of these things kind of um, catapulted her a little bit. Um, and then we have an interesting moment in the in the book where even Barack Obama behind the scenes, we kind of have him looming largely throughout the book. And he is um, in a position where he's sort of admiring what she's done and is kind of trying to bring, he's in a room with um, 40 or so very prominent African-American donors, and he's trying to bring them along and say, look, it looks, you know, I think at the time it looked like she might be the front runner and might get the nomination. And he was trying to convince them as to why she would be a great nominee and a great president. And, um, and so we have all of these moments that kind of talk about why she had that momentum going for her. Um, and up until the fact, uh, the time where Bernie Sanders has his heart attack and things kind of shift. I think, you know, one of the things that, you know, just to, to pull out a sort of specific thread, the, um, Warren was not able to raise a ton of money in the, in the sort of opening quarter. I mean, she was, I don't know, fourth or fifth among the candidates and she was spending all of it. And everyone looked at her and said, this is crazy. She's hiring up staff. Like she's building out this like huge campaign organization and she's going to go broke. And instead what happened was, uh, she'd built out an organization that was very good at, uh, building grassroots donors. Um, and all of a sudden she was very competitive with money at the same time. Uh, the the Democratic debates started, and she was really good in the Democratic debates. Um, the first Democratic debate, there were none of the other front runners were on the on the stage with her, and she kind of wiped the floor with the competition. Second Democratic debate, uh, or, or at least the first time she goes out there with Sanders, she's doing a very good job of articulating a progressive viewpoint that is not quite as far left as his, and and is you know, I think more expansive than his in a lot of ways. And at the same time, the seeds of her destruction are sort of being planted, right? Um, she never thought that healthcare was going to be the dominant issue in the primary uh, in the way that it was. Um, and what we write about in the book, and, and she's one of them, but there are several candidates between those polls that you were talking about before, Rachel, of Joe Biden on one side and Bernie Sanders on the other. Everyone else who rose up a little bit got knocked down by the other people in the middle who had a competitive need and by either Biden or Sanders for their policies being, and sometimes both for their policies being too left or being too right for that candidate. And so what happens is there's just a pile on with anybody who's in between Sanders and Biden who, you know, kind of, I think, understood their utility to each other um, and, and really circled each other kind of carefully through most of the primary. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, like what, when a poll comes out, the first thing I look at is the number of don't know, um, don't know or refused on each candidate, right? So uh, 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 when the conversation was really centered around Pete Buttigieg and his issue with black voters, right? I put out a uh, diagnostic article as Pete Buttigieg doesn't have an issue with black voters other than the fact that they don't know who the heck he is, right? And I show I showed the, you know, 45 candidates that were running in the contest, you know, it was 20 something at the time. And I showed uh, using the morning consult tracking poll, which was, you know, of obviously longitudinal and, and stable over time, how how much name ID affects, you know, favorability, right? So that we, we pull, uh, as a professional pollster, I, uh, a lot of polling data is misused. And one of the things I've tried to get people to understand is that we, we want polling data to give us what it cannot give us. So it's not that it's wrong all the time. It's that we are using it in ways that are inappropriate statistically. So, and one of this is in favorability, right? Because if, if, um, uh, we don't, if 45% of the audience, the respondent pool doesn't know who you are, and they do know who the two, two of the candidates are, Sanders and Biden, then it's really not appropriate to be making comparisons, even at the top level, you know, the big pool, and certainly not when you get down into what we call cross-tab data, where you're talking about, um, you know, groups of black voters or college-educated voters or women or men or whatever, right? And yet we use this data all the time on every show and use it, you know, to, to make assumptions about people's support. And so I was showing, no, no, people just don't know who Pete Buttigieg is. If black voters had a choice between Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg, he would not have a problem with black voters. I promise you, <laughs> they would be going with 
beat Buttigieg because they would not go with Sanders over ideology, right? Um, so um, yeah, so it's really fascinating. Um, I, I want to push on then, yeah, what with Warren, right? Um, I became very unpopular doing some of the progressive shows, I think in the summer of, of uh, leading into to summer of 2019, leading into the formal primary period, when I was telling a progressive host, no, it's not going to be Sanders who is the progressive front runner where it's going to, it's going to be Warren. It's going to be Elizabeth Warren because that's who in 2016 progressives wanted to run in the first place and they didn't get her to get in the race and they got Sanders and, you know, now they can have the real thing, the, the person that they want. And she's much more politically talented than Sanders is. And she's got enough name ID that she will probably eclipse him. What I didn't predict is that, the I got a plan thing would stretch to the point where you would put out a detailed $23 trillion plan. <laughs> and uh, I went into my campaign politics class and I said, here's a free tip if you're ever running, you know, in politics, never release a detailed $23 trillion plan. It's a bad idea, you know? <laughs> I don't care what side of the aisle you're running on. Just don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. good advice. <laughs> right? <laughs> So let's move into the best part of the primary. Uh, as a political analyst, and I, I'm going to be um, pretty clear here, also as a, a concerned American, definitely a an, uh, an outspoken never-Trumper. I, um, at that point, was pretty involved with the never-Trump movement, uh, affiliated, not working yet within the Scannon Center, but... Um, which is a, uh, you know, ex-libertarians, reformed libertarians, they call themselves, uh, but never Trump-oriented uh, center-right think tank and uh, kind of a housing center of never Trump. Um, you know, finding myself friends and, and alliances with people like Bill Crystal and Tom Nichols, uh, you know, kind of unlikely allies, uh, and just a deep believer that, that, you know, Donald Trump is not your typical Republican. He's not Marco Rubio. He's not Jeb Bush. And his politics are an existential threat to American democracy. I was, um, you know, an analyst, but also uh, deeply concerned about Trump winning, right? So I um, I was worried that the Democrats were going to produce a contested convention as we were coming down the stretch. And those fears became much more pronounced as Michael Bloomberg was looking at the weakness of Joe Biden's campaign. And my fear was much better informed probably than the average person's because I understood one thing about Bloomberg that mattered, well, two things, I guess I'd say, that mattered the most. And that was that he had two things that were going to make him an immediate threat to, um, to the contest coming up with a nomination. And that was that he had money and name ID. <laughs> and the last thing that the Democratic field needed was more fracturing, right? It was, uh, it needed less, not more. So um, as we move into that Bloomberg period, you guys are, are kind of documenting the, you know, the closing of you know, Nevada into South Carolina, the Clyburn endorsement, which was so much more hectic than I did. Can you guys just describe a little bit that process of what's going on in, in, in the Biden world with Clyburn, the, you know, the, the endorsement that's more complex than we knew and kind of uh, uh, bring that to life for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, so you've got this situation where so much of the Democratic Party is worried about Bernie Sanders winning the nomination, and they're they're panicking almost, um, yes. even in late 2019. And we report for the first time, I think, at least on the details of Hillary Clinton looking at getting into the race in November of 2019, right around the time Bloomberg is. Uh, we also reported about her thinking about it, you know, prior to that, um, certainly for the first time, and. What's going on here is that people are seeing Joe Biden on the campaign trail, and he's he looks lackluster. Um, John Kerry, uh, who was out in Iowa to be a surrogate for him in early uh, 2020, you know, was was basically trying to figure out like how he might be able to unravel his commitments, his speaking fees, his seat on the Bank of America board to like get into the race if necessary. And so they're all very worried about Bernie Sanders, and then. You know, Biden comes in fourth in Iowa and he comes in fifth in New Hampshire and he almost runs out of money to the point that um, his uh, his aides go to him and basically say, look, you might have to refinance your home or come out, you know, get a second mortgage to fund the payroll. Um, and all of this is looking 
uh, you know, really bad for Biden. And it's really in New Hampshire that that Bloomberg kind of pushes forward. I mean, he'd already done a Super Bowl ad, but in February, uh, his allies, his lieutenants, the people on his campaign are now reaching out to Biden donors and supporters um, really more actively. There's a a meeting on Capitol Hill with moderate Democrats where they sort of lay out the Bloomberg plans for getting in. And um, and Bloomberg's really looming over Biden's shoulder. And, and to your point, Rachel, um, the possibility of Bloomberg getting in and Biden staying in um, really ends up with a, a fracture point. And the establishment Democrats don't love Bloomberg um, because he wasn't one of them. He hasn't been part of the party for 40 years. He was a Republican as mayor of New York. And it's not that they don't like his money on progressive issues. It's not that they don't agree with him on climate change or gun control, but they, um, but they, they, he's not one of them. Um, on the progressive side, there is a real concern about somebody coming in and buying a nomination. Um, and then you see Warren just take him out on a debate stage in Nevada. Um, and this is one of the things getting to the point of lucky with Biden that had nothing to do with Joe Biden, right? It wasn't that Elizabeth Warren was trying to make sure Biden was the nominee. She just found Mike Bloomberg so despicable um, and the concept of him maybe getting in so ugly that she wanted to make sure um, he got, you know, politically buried out in the desert. We walk, you know, walk voter, uh, walk readers through her thought process and the, the really sort of um, deep effort that she made to, like, gather information on Bloomberg so that she could hit him on stage. People may remember her, her just like hammering him like a law professor, um, you know, over and over again about his NDAs, non-disclosure agreements with women and whether he would make them public and how many there were. And, um, you know, you could see the other candidates on the stage sort of smiling to themselves, um, some of them with their jaws a little bit open, uh, kind of watching this this um, complete uh, disembowelment of Mike Bloomberg's campaign going on. And so you you kind of watch all these things that are related to um, the Democratic Party's desire to stop Bernie Sanders from getting the nomination. That doesn't mean everybody who's a Democrat, um, but they were concerned. He was he had risen from the heart attack. Uh, most candidates would have gotten out. He rebounded from it. It hurt Warren that some of the, you know, longtime Bernie Sanders people like kind of came home to him in the way that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did when she endorsed him. And so You've got this moment, um, you know, for a couple of weeks there in, in like February of 2020, where it's not certain what's going to happen. And then um, and, and the odds of that contested convention that you're talking about just seem to be growing uh, because yeah. there's no incentive for anyone to get out. Absolutely. And, and, and history tells us, I mean, people don't get out. They don't get out. I mean, we know, we saw what happened in 2016 when the, the there was a time period, and I, do, I, do, I kind of document this in my 2016 book, you know, there was a time period where Republicans could have stopped Trump, but they couldn't coordinate and get it done before Super Tuesday. And by then it was way too late, right? So people don't get out until the plane won't fly, meaning right, like exactly. they, they run out of money, they get out of presidential yeah. races. Yeah. I mean, because it's just, it's so heady, right? You, you're, you're, you know, it's a very intoxicating thing to run for president. Right. But I think 2016 experience. was such a nightmare for Democrats that they didn't want to relive again. Yeah. Um, so there was such an increased amount of pressure on someone like Bernie Sanders at the very end. He has four phone com conversations with Barack Obama, who's tried to stay out of it, but feels the need to come into you uh, to kind of save the party at the time and say, look, Bernie, what do you want? What can, how can I help? Um, and he's doing so very gingerly because he doesn't want to piss off Bernie and his supporters because he remembers what happened in 2016 and how his supporters never quite came home for Hillary. Um, they don't want to do to make the same mistake this time around. So I think that was a lesson that they took away from 2016, how to not, uh, you know, piss off half of the party or a good part of the party, um, how to kind of make them involved and bring them home in the end. And that was a huge part. And I think Clyburn also and the Clyburn endorsement, you know, he was kind of hanging out on the sidelines. And finally, it took the House Majority Whip to come in and essentially say, you know, come off the sidelines and say, I'm doing this. He was the first leader at the time, really, to come out and make such a major endorsement. But I think he did that mostly because of the fear of Bernie.
Yeah, the ghost of 2016 hangs all over the 2020 nomination from the very, very beginning. Obama's reticence to weigh in, anybody else's reticence to weigh in. I mean, when we look at the endorsement primary of 2016 versus 2020, they are as night to day as you can possibly make two nomination systems uh, be. And that's because, you know, the fear of being labeled as an establishment person by the progressive base, which is, of course, your primary, primary audience. Uh, is so thick amongst uh, sitting senators, members of Congress, people who need to get elected. Um, they don't want to get in. So you know where where Hillary picked up endorsements so far. I mean, she was she was so well endorsed with uh, pledge delegates, super delegates, uh, which of course were eliminated for the 2020 cycle. So there's no there's no mathematical reason to weigh in now. There's no formal weight to an endorsement. There's that's it's merely symbolic, like in the Republican Party. And that's a huge disincentive to get to go and do it, to, to leap in. And, um, you know, yeah, we've never seen anything like that. And and and, and then as you, as you point out, there's this fear because, you know, the untalked about reality of 2016 is that defection killed Hillary's candidacy in the Midwest. I mean, we look at Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, those three Midwestern blue wall states are a story about who voted third party more than they are about a triumph of Trumpism. He didn't even crack 50% in those states, right? So if we look at, at the defection rate of, you know, 6% in Wisconsin going to uh, third party candidates, that's de decisive a decisive margin for Hillary Clinton. Uh, and that's the same story that played out in Pennsylvania, in Michigan. You know, it, I knew in my own forecasting work that the negative partisanship, which is a concept that comes from political science research, not from me, uh, I apply it in my forecasting work, but it talks about how, you know, being out of power or suffering a big loss like the Democrats did in 2016 crystallizes thinking, right? So, uh, you know, suddenly the the nuances between, you know, the establishment and the progressive base are not as important. And of course, we see that uh, with uh, unity rallying around Biden. By, by July, you see 92% of Democrats saying, I'm voting for Biden in polling data. In 2016, that never happened for Clinton. Even all the way up to November, that never happened for Clinton. It should have been. And now, to me, it was something that I would know to look for in data. But um, yeah, so uh, negative partisanship was always going to make 2020 a much different cycle in terms of turnout, in terms of rallying around the party's nominee. But it was always the case that if they pushed Bernie and made it look like it was a rigged election, um, that those supporters were going to pay, make them pay. <laughs> and uh, I think they were right about that. Uh, I mean, I think there is only so much that some of the most strident Bernie Sanders voters would have put up with, even with the specter of, of a Trump second term. Uh, of course, you know, COVID rolls in, though, right? Uh, we'll get to that in just a second. But I, I don't want to um, remiss on, on, the, on the decisions by Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg to get out of the race before Super Tuesday. So I, um, you know, was covering this, you know, for my um, independent work, you know, I, I had an article that came out in The Guardian. When uh, Biden won Super Tuesday, I knew that at that moment that the, he would be the nominee, that from that moment on, due to the, con you know, the way that uh, black voters had coalesced around him, that uh, he would be the nominee and, and uh, um, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar coming out and endorsing him and getting out before Super Tuesday sealed the deal. Uh, but I was shocked. I'll be honest with you. I was shocked when they, they, they made those decisions. And I thought there had to have been to, to get them out of the race more more coercion, I guess is what I, so you guys recount that Obama does reach out to both of them. Uh, Klobuchar sees he's trying to reach her and infers naturally what he wants to talk about. And uh, Pete Buttigieg does talk with President Obama, but this is only about the endorsement, not the decision to leave the race. And that was a, just a really astounding, um, you know, um, um, detail for me because I had always assumed both of them had to have been pushed to make the decision to exit before Super Tuesday. And it sounds like from your reporting, they both arrived there internally with their own circles and their own campaigns. So if you guys could talk a little bit more about your reporting on those decisions, I would love to hear a little bit more about it. 
I think the, um, you know, with regard to, to both of those candidates, um, their campaigns uh, laid out for them what was ahead of them, which was uh, they could win some delegates. And if there was a contested convention, there was some possibility, some small possibility that either one of them would win, um, but that they would go in without having won delegates in majority African-American or majority Hispanic districts, and then try to wrestle a nomination away from people who had gotten more delegates, but a plurality, not a majority, and doing so with basically the support of only white voters, which in a Democratic primary, I mean, the optics of that are self-explanatory, I think, um, you know, that, that they really had very narrow paths. But more important, I think for both of them, and this goes back to the idea of 2016, they, like Bernie Sanders, were deathly afraid of being blamed for a Democratic loss to Donald Trump for a second time. And I think that really hangs over a lot of the reporting of the book and hangs over the primary. All of these Democrats, and to your point about negative partisanship and you know what results from, from losing and the unity that, that that kind of creates going forward, um, I think you see that in this moment um, where it's not just are they worried Bernie Sanders wins the nomination or Donald Trump wins the election, but Klobuchar and, and Pete Buttigieg both being you know relatively savvy political players are worried about the effects of that on them, uh, about the perception as well. And so Buttigieg's group, uh, aides talked to him the night after, you know, the night of the South Carolina primary, and they basically laid out for him um, all of the numbers. And then they said to him, look, you know, if you, uh, you know, if you want to stay in, we're, we're with you, but just know um, that you will preserve your capacity to run in the future better if you get out now, if you're part of a unity movement. And, I, you know, I think basically the same thing is going on with Klobuchar. Klobuchar decided to get out and endorse at the same time. Buttigieg wanted to race to get out first and then was going to hold back his endorsement as some sort of leverage. And Obama tells him, basically, you, you don't have leverage after Super Tuesday. Now's the time. Um, but, I, you know, I mean, I think they all kind of came to the realization at the same time. And by the way, on the morning after the uh, South Carolina primary, Obama's, this is little notice, but we write about it in the book, Obama's finance guy, Rufus Gifford, who goes on to serve in a high finance role for, for Biden, sends out an email to 800 uh, Obama national donors, like basically his core big donor group, the morning after South Carolina and says, now's the time to get off the sidelines and give to Joe, um, which is the imprimatur of Barack Obama coming in. And so you've got these things all kind of swirling around at the same time. And of course, um, you know, within the Democratic primary, the people on the campaigns know each other. They know all the same donors. They know all the same influencers across the country. And so who knows how many, you know, multiples of these conversations are going on. But I think all of them came to the realization, I shouldn't say all of them, Buttigieg and Klobuchar came to the realization um, that this was uh, their time to get out and be, be unifiers or continue the primary and potentially uh, lead to Donald Trump's second election. And, and they realized the, the damage they could do to themselves with that. Because if I had to say, like, you know, for your book's thesis, Lucky, there's the, if I had to say there's one example, right, two, well, maybe two, two that kind of roll together, it's this, right? It's the decision of Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar together to get out before Super Tuesday, endorse him before the contest. And one other little thing, and I don't know that you guys mention it, but the strate the major strategic mistake, and, it, and it's a campaign team that ran, I mean, they have a, a not a great candidate, but they have a great campaign. And that's the uh, Bloomberg people, right? They run a great campaign in terms of the messaging, the ads, everything's good. They've got unlimited pockets. So that also helps. But they make one fatal error, one, and that is to not play South Carolina, right? Because if they had played there, then you never have this giant Biden victory. You have a mute, you have a win, but you don't have this giant win, right? And ever that whole narrative changes, right? Yeah, I mean, if you look at if you look at Bloomberg's polling, um, you know, across the country and in, in in South Carolina, I mean, he was doing pretty well and was not even on the ballot. No doubt, he would have chucked off at least fifteen points, at least fifteen of that, if he had, and if he had really aggressively played it. So, like, if you look back at that diagnostic, that's the luckiest thing that happens to Joe Biden right there. That's the thing, um, Amy. 
Yeah. What do you think? What do you, what do you think about that? I totally, totally agree. I mean, you look at that moment, um, you know, there were people, John talked about this earlier, but there were so many people who thought that Biden couldn't win, like in that very, in that same space where, you know, Bloomberg is building up. I remember watching TV and watching him build all these um, endorsements and thinking and talking to Biden sources at the same time. And they couldn't get anyone to, you know, anyone of like prominence and watching their people kind of go that way and, and move over to Bloomberg. It was so frustrating for them in that moment. So if they would have just, you're right, I totally agree with you. If they would have tweaked it, if they would have run a little more in the primary, but I, I do agree. If they had consulted a political scientist, they would have, I would have told, I mean, when I saw that decision, I, 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 I said, that's, that's not a good decision. Why would you not? You can't do that. Like you have to win. You have to compete there. Because the narrative matters so much, right? And so, and dang, if it doesn't end up saving America. (laughs) What's fascinating about that with Bloomberg is, I think these people understood the value of African-American voters, like the disproportionate value of running up the score in uh, African-American majority districts to winning the nomination. Like, that's not, I mean, for you, Rachel, that's not um, a new concept. Um, But because, because of the way the delegates are allocated based on past performance, and the fact that, uh, you know, in, in many cases, the African-American vote becomes a block in primaries, um, yes. which is a well, starting in South Carolina. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It's, right. And it's like it's a very like the, the African-American voters like have such a sophisticated um, uh, such a sophisticated level of understanding of how they can kind of pull their power and, and go in the same place. Whoever wins the Democratic primary in South Carolina in recent years has been the winner of the Democratic nomination, like pretty much without without a problem. I mean, you know, Obama had to push off Clinton, you know, for, for a long time through 50 states or whatever. But it's really when he, you know, kind of runs up the score in South Carolina that you start to see that race breaking in, in a way that's good for him. The same thing with Clinton in 2016. You know, she she's struggling with, with Sanders. She's struggling with Sanders. Yep. And then she gets a huge lift from the African-American voters in South Carolina, which act as both a bellwether and I think an influencer to some degree of African-American voters in other states. So if you're Bloomberg and you're sitting there on the sidelines and you're thinking to yourself, I can skip this race. It's the one race you can't skip. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's astounding actually. Right. So like when that was announced that they were only going to start super Tuesday and put him on the ballot, I, I know I can't be alone for the many thousands of political scientists that teach the same topics I do thinking did you not contact one person that studies presidential primaries <laughs> because we would none of us and we would tell you for cheap on your um your um version of cheap michael bloomberg that you cannot do that because by the time you leave south carolina black voters have coalesced around their nominee and that sets the narrative for all the deep south super t- tuesday states so that you have to compete there or you're done you know <laughs> and you know we we go in the book we um we go into detail about Alabama's seventh district is like the perfect district for the Biden people that they were talking about for months and months. And like, they're basically like, this is, it's a a majority black district represented by Terry Sewell in Congress runs from Montgomery up toward, toward Birmingham. And they just looked at that as their like perfect district Um, in part because it's largely because it's a majority African-American, but also because it's older conservative African-American and they're the, to the extent that there are white people in the district uh, they tend to be, pretty moderate. Um, and so they just looked at that district forever as like, this is the one that we should be telling donors about. This is the one we should be talking about, the one we should be concentrating about replicate, concentrating on replicating. Um, and so for, you know, for, for folks who are a little more into the um, political science angle of it and, and the numbers angle of it, um, you know, that's, it's like, a, you know, maybe a page or two in the book about Alabama's seventh district that sort of explains why um, African-American voters are so important in Democratic primaries beyond their actual numbers. Yeah, so critical. So much so that, you know, a, a political scientist like me says, yeah, Iowa, New Hampshire, who cares? The primary winner is going to be the person that carries South Carolina. <laughs> and, you know, it didn't make me and engender me any fans in Bernie world when I would do that. But, you know, 
um, yeah. So yeah. So that was that was lucky, you know. And then we move on into the general, right? And per, and it's so you know for people who follow my work, they know I had a forecast out from 2019 that said, look, the Democrats have a structural advantage for 2020. That even and that was with a three you know four percent three and a half percent unemployment rate um, uh, in favor of Republicans incumbency advantage in favor of Republicans um, but understanding demographically um, you know exactly how number one Hillary Clinton had lost in the Midwest with that defection factor being a huge issue um, that I you know my initial map said look this this Midwestern um, trifecta, when you look at their political behavior in 2018, which I also forecasted, was so robustly democratic that those Senate races weren't even competitive in 2018, right? We, they, the Republicans couldn't even make a, a uh, run at Pennsylvania Senate and Michigan Senate, right? So I knew that that, that trifecta up there was going to be pretty solid. And if they if it is, that, then the race is over, right? And so I my forecast... Uh, was really looking at Arizona as a gain state. I mean, I, I had my eye on Georgia. I know the Abrams people were pressing me pretty hard on it. I, I knew it was competitive. I I did not expect that they would actually be able to win it, and they did. Um, but the um the you know the real difference would have been the nominee. I said any uh, you know unlike others, I thought pretty much any of the candidates. Though again, I didn't think any would win the nominee except for the high name ID candidates. I said anybody could win the race except for one, and that would be Bernie Sanders, which, you know, didn't make me popular again amongst that crowd. Uh, but my explanation for why was a little bit different. Um, you know, if the Democrats were like the Republicans and willing to row a boat no matter who the captain is, then Sanders is probably electable, right? Uh, you just jump on the boat and you start rowing it. <laughs> and if it, you know, once said nice things about, you know, socialist dictators in, in Cuba, that's okay. You just keep rowing the boat, right? Uh, but that's not how the Democratic Party works and not in any stretch of the imagination. So if Sanders had been the nominee, it would have been a total shit show. Uh, the, the, you would have seen Democrats running both two campaigns at the same time, uh, most of these uh, moderate senators and moderate frontliners in the House would have been running against Trump and against Sanders, right? Socialism. And that would have been enough probably to um, to set my forecast off, okay? Uh, my forecast always imagined a unified democratic coalition, which is Democrats and left-leaning independents all pushing the boat in one direction. And the only candidate that would make that not happen would have been a Sanders uh, candidacy because it would have divided people and freaked them out so much that they couldn't keep their messaging straight. <laughs> Even with a Lincoln project showing them the way, hey, run a referendum campaign, make it all about Trump, you know, 300 ads, uh, to, full disclosure, again, to everybody, uh, yeah, I was a senior advisor on the Lincoln project. Um, but this uh, strategy has now been revealed in a report that they released last week. Um, 300 ads, none of them about issues, all of them referendum, Trump versus America, right? Um, but, uh, you know, that kind of discipline is not in the Democratic Party. Uh, they would not have done what the Republicans did four years ago when they got a nominee they didn't like and just coalesce and move on, right? So, um, so when we move in now over to the to the general election, right? What would you guys say? And I was reading through, you know, the general election and I mean, it's just a general election for the elect for the record books, because, of course, we have this global pandemic come in. And, you know, and that in itself is something that you just don't tend to see uh, at the closest parallel would be the 2008 uh, cycle where the economic collapse becomes a major factor. You go from talking about health care and the Iraq war to economy. Right. Um, and so is the case here. Uh, but this is so much bigger so much bigger. And then you have a situation where you have an anti-intellectual, uh, anti-science president who's managing this global pandemic in a way that's tip, you know totally different than the other Western democracies. So what would you guys say, if you had to sum up the general, was the luckiest break for Biden? Is it the pandemic? Is it Trump's response to the pandemic? What do you thought? What do you guys think? And, and you can decide who wants to go first. It's both. Um, I think, you know, we talk a lot about Biden and the Democrats in this book, but we also focus a lot on Trump, too, especially in the general. It's like the curtain raises and here's Trump. And basically, um, 
I think that he never quite took it seriously. And when uh, we have a scene in the book, his uh, his campaign manager at the time, Brad Parscale, uh, has a conversation with him and says, look, Mr. President, this could be your undoing, meaning COVID could be your undoing. And he has no idea, he has no concept as to why, you know, like he, he actually says, what does this have to do with politics? Um, which really tells you everything you need to know about <laughs> what he was thinking and, uh, you know, just his view on politics. Um, and, you know, every politician knows that politics is local, but this is like, this is like that to, you know, the extreme. But anyway, so you have him essentially saying that you have him dominating the airwaves, saying crazy things like inject yourself with disinfectant. Um, and in the meantime, you know, he, he's poking fun at Biden for being in his basement, but Biden is sort of doing the right thing by staying home and is leading kind of the de facto leader by, you know, doing all the right things that, you know, following health and safety guidelines, staying home. But also it's helping him because he's not on the campaign trail. It's taken him off the campaign trail where he is so gaff prone. Um, his advisors were essentially telling him in the primary, they were thinking about possibly even tweaking his schedule because, he was making his biggest mistakes in the evening when he was very tired. And there was a thought as to, you know, taking him off, you know, in these evening events. So essentially, he's at home and not having these, these interviews. He's not, he's not doing interviews, not doing events. Um, and we have the scene in the book where Anita Dunn, who is the senior advisor, essentially tells an associate, this is the best thing. COVID is the best thing that ever happened to him because she's saying kind of privately what a lot of people are thinking out loud, which is that staying home actually benefits him. Um, I guess I could I could pick up there for a second. I mean, I, I agree with uh, everything Amy just said. Um, and, you know, just there's this contrast that Biden is trying to draw with Trump, which I think stems from what Democrats certainly saw as wrong with Trump, what some Republicans saw as wrong with Trump. Um, but maybe was not in, in nearly as sharp relief for um, the less invested voter until COVID, which is this this compassion, character, and competence contrast. And then you see, and you know, Biden's building that all along before COVID. And then you see COVID happen, and you know, the president of the United States is out there. He's he's not compassionate. Um, he is not. He does not appear to be handling things competently. Um, there is, I think, a, a good degree of question about his character because of those things. Um, that he is not unifying the country. I mean, most political leaders see a crisis coming their way, and they recognize that at least that there is the potential for political opportunity, a rallying around the flag effect. You think about George W. Bush after 9/11, um, and you know Trump never recognized it for that um he never wanted to um he never really wanted to uh um embrace it as an opportunity really i mean you know except for on the level of um you know helping out businesses that he liked you know the my pillow guy but he didn't he didn't really understand it as a political opportunity and he also did not understand the as amy pointed out didn't understand the connection between your government service, like how you're doing for the public and your political fortunes. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, Biden goes into the goes into his house and not only is he modeling behavior, but he's also able to be very scripted for many months on the campaign trail. So basically, Biden's biggest weakness is obscured for months and Trump's greatest weaknesses are on full display for months. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, if, if you had to say there was a thing of luck, right? It's, you know, the public, whenever it didn't see a lot of Trump and it saw a lot of the Democrats, right? So when that Democratic primary news dominated the cycle, you saw Trump's approval go up uh, because most people are not us. They don't follow the news and they don't want to embed themselves in, in news and current events. Um, and, and then, you know, there's kind of like three tiers, right? The, the no info, the low info, 
and then you know uh, i guess i'd call four tiers like the kind of you know reasonably informed and then us right <laughs> um so you know when the, when people didn't see trump they could pretend he wasn't that bad and then they but then they'd be forced to look at him a lot they'd remember and he would always come back down right and covid forced them to look at him every day and remember, no, this man is completely incompetent and actually probably insane, right? And so it was it was just in your face for months at the same time that normally they would have been assessing Biden and and the cycle would have been talking about Biden and about Biden issues and about Biden gaffes potentially if there were some or what have you. So it was definitely major luck to have, you know, a, you want a referendum campaign you have democratic electioneering, which is not designed to run election, uh, a referendum campaign, uh, much to many Democratic uh, voters and, and coalition voter chagrin. Democrats don't do that type of campaigning. They like to focus on issues and make it about, you know, things like that. Um, so you've got the Lincoln Project running a referendum campaign, but you've got the natural environment producing this referendum campaign. Here is your current president. Here is this massive economic and health <laughs> crisis, and this is you know this is who's in charge of your life. <laughs> Do you really you want that for four more years? You know, and uh, you could not have asked for a better stroke of of reminder. I mean, that said, we get into election night, and you know it's exactly the election that I predicted nineteen months earlier with no economic crisis and no COVID crisis. Right. And, you know, uh, I point out pretty early into the COVID mismanagement. It was pretty obvious by that point that the other Western democracies were doing a set. You know, if you had a set of menu options of how to respond, you know, everyone else is doing this half of the menu and Trump and the GOP governors are doing the other half of the menu. Right. America stands alone in choosing these weird policy responses that are going to cause many people to die and COVID to spread like wildfire. And, you know, you look at public opinion um, globally, I think The Economist put out a, a, a public survey of world leaders and how they're responding to COVID amongst the, the populations of those countries. And everywhere else you can see People, you know, New Zealand, of course, famously deals with COVID very well. Uh, Australia, uh, France, not so much. The UK, and yeah, more like us. So you see all of the public reaction to COVID. Uh, places that handle it well, the public responds with good approval. Uh, places that don't handle it so hot, I mean, relative to us, everyone handles it well, but, um, you know, not, doesn't handle it so well like uh, Macron in, in France, you know, the public approval is it demonstrates that. There's only one democracy where public opinion is completely stagnant. And that's the United States of America, right? And that's because hyperpartisanship and polarization have left us inelastic, unable to move, unable to even respond to something as jarring as a global pandemic and an economic collapse that's being handled in a way that no other leader, even a Republican like Marco Rubio or George um, uh, uh, Jeb Bush would have handled it, right? Uh, and, and yet there's no response because there's this dug in, you know, Republican identifiers and survey data, whichever survey you're looking at, you go into the party cross tabs and it's the same story. 90-10, 90-10, 90-10, whatever the question is, no matter what it is and, and what the reality is, it's 90-10, I approve of Donald Trump because that's my guy and I'm sticking to it, right? <laughs> Amongst Republican identifiers. And, it's, and, it, and it also bleeds into those right-leaning independents, which is a big chunk of that 30% who are um, uh, independents in a survey. And so we just see no reaction all the way through. And so, you know, even with that big lucky break, um, we, we should have seen in a healthy democracy, in, a, in American democracy in 1980, we would have seen a Jimmy Carter Reagan map, okay? We would have seen an electoral college up in the 400s and a popular vote spread up at the 10 point level. But we didn't see that because of this very unique time that we're living in in American politics, where we have this hyperpartisanship and polarization, which has infested or infected our body politic to the extent where we 
really see, especially concentrated in the Republican side, an inability to even respond to political stimuli in the way that we have traditionally as a country. And we really don't see that in political science research. Uh, we don't have public opinion data, but we have Congress, um, really good quantified data for Congress, uh, aside from the 1850s, right up to 1860, when the Civil War sparked. So it's really quite, uh, quite remarkable. I would have, I could have talked to you guys forever. I could have talked to you guys for three hours. It's such amazing reporting. I urge everyone to pick up a copy of Lucky. It is the closest thing you'll ever get to being in the room where it happened um, with these candidates, these huge big names in politics and feeling like you are part of, you know, one of the most important spectacles in American politics every four years, a presidential nomination campaign, general election, uh, cer certainly the nerd Super Bowl. So Jonathan and Amy, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedules and, and coming and talking to me and my audience today. Thank you, Rachel. It was so fun to be here. Oh, thank you so much. And I am looking forward to, you know, more of this in the future.